Section 22 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Responsibilities of Boards of Missions, Part 2. We have not said a word against the organization of the board. We would not, for any consideration, lisp a syllable that could in any way do them harm. We most unfeignedly rejoice in their great success and usefulness. We conceive we are doing them a friendly act in publishing this review. It is right to discuss with respect and kind feeling a question in which all churches, and the Presbyterian especially, are deeply concerned. We believe it is perfectly easy for the American board so to conduct their operations as not to come into collision with the rights of the churches. We believe, moreover, that any departure from that way will be found to be, in the language of this report, quote, a ruinous usurpation, end quote. That the misconception of the true relation of the board to the church and the missionaries, to which we have referred, is a very serious matter, is evident from the letter of the Reverend Mr. Treat to the Cherokee and Choctaw missions. In the existing state of the church and of the country, we cannot regard the adoption of that letter by the Prudential Committee and its publication as anything short of a national calamity. The elements of strife and disunion are already so numerous and powerful that the accession of a body among the most influential in the whole land to the side of separation must be regarded as a most serious event. Should the letter be ultimately sanctioned by the board, as it has already been by the Prudential Committee, the consequences must be disastrous. As soon as the letter was read, its true character was apparent. The abolitionists at once said, we ask nothing more, that is our creed. One of those abolitionists, since his return home, has published a manifesto giving an account of his visit to Boston, of his fidelity to his principles, and of the action of the board. In that publication he says, quote, While slavery has a tolerated existence in churches planted and watered by those boards, of foreign and domestic missions, it will be impossible to bring American Christianity into that open and honest antagonism with slavery which is necessary for its destruction. End quote. Mr. Secretary Treat has done what was promised a year ago, quote, to the entire satisfaction of the most decided abolitionists of Boston and vicinity, and to my own. If, says he, the missionaries obey the instructions of the committee, they are abolitionists. If they disobey, they will be dropped. I am satisfied, he adds, with the above action of the committee. Deference to opposing opinions has made them use much indirectness and verbosity in stating their abolition creed, but it is an abolition creed nevertheless. End quote. After referring to the action of the board in the premises, he says, quote, I see not what the board could have done farther unless they had resolved to cut off the missionaries without waiting to see whether they would obey the instructions of their committee or not. Let us sustain the American board in the anti-slavery race which it has so well begun. It will be deplorable indeed if anti-slavery men do not supply any falling off of funds in pro-slavery sections of the country. Let us unitedly move the Home Missionary Society to plant the South with a slavery-expelling gospel. End quote. Such is the interpretation put upon Mr. Treat's letter by the abolitionists, and such, we are deeply grieved to say, appears to us its only true interpretation. The American Board of Commissioners is beyond doubt one of the noblest institutions of benevolence in the world. All Christians, yea, all mankind, are interested in its proper management. 
a fearful responsibility rests on those who are at the helm of that noble ship. Under the guidance of strong and skilful hands, she has hitherto weathered every storm. She is now approaching with all her canvas spread the outer circle of the great whirlpool of fanaticism. The slightest deviation from the proper course must bring her within the sweep of that fearful current. Those on board may, for a while, exult in her accelerated motion, but every practised eye can see, from the quivering of her sails, that such acceleration is due not to the favouring breezes, but to the dreadful undertow, which must inevitably engulf everything yielded to its power. A brief analysis of this letter will enable the reader to judge of its true character. There are three points as to which it expresses the views of the committee. One, as to slavery and slaveholding. Two, as to the duties of the missionaries in relation to it. Three, the power and authority of the committee in these premises. As to the first of these points, the letter says, quote, Domestic slavery is at war with the rights of man and opposed to the principles of the gospel. It is an anti-Christian system, and hence you have a right to deal with it accordingly. True, it is regulated by law, but it does not for that reason lose its moral relations. Suppose polygamy or intemperance were hedged in by legal enactments, could you not speak against them as crying evils? End quote. Though the system is always and everywhere sinful, yet slaveholding is not always a sin. Provided, one, the slaveholder enters the relation and continues in it, involuntarily, or two, that he holds the relation simply for the benefit of the slave. The slaveholder may indeed misjudge in not granting immediate emancipation. In that case, quote, the continuance of the relation is wrong, but the master may stand acquitted in the sight of God because influenced solely by benevolent motives, end quote. Christ and his apostles, though they did not expressly condemn slavery, said much which, quote, bears strongly against it, if the single precept, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, were carried out, it would cease at once in all its essential features. The directions given in the New Testament as to the relative duties of masters and slaves are said to be, quote, consistent with the hypothesis that the apostles regarded the general relation as unnatural and sinful. But why, asks the writer, did not the apostles directly affirm the sinfulness of slavery? Why did they not insist on the duty of emancipation? Simply because, if we may presume to give an opinion, they saw such a course in their circumstances would not, soonest and best, extirpate the evil. End quote. As to the duty of missionaries in reference to slavery, this letter teaches, one, that they should denounce it. The only question is as to time and mode. This must be left to their discretion, but apostolic example does not justify continued silence. If after twenty-five years that time has not yet come, in those Indian missions the committee say, we may well ask, when will it come? 2. If a recent convert is connected with slavery, the missionary should inquire into his views of that institution. 3. If he proposes to come to the Lord's Supper, he must, quote, prove himself free from the guilt of that system before he can make good his title to a place among the followers of Christ, end quote. He must show either, one, that his, quote, being the owner of slaves is involuntary on his part, or, two, that he retains the legal relation at their request and for their advantage, and that he utterly repudiates the idea of holding property in his fellow men, end quote. 
Three, the committee, quote, denying that there can be morally or scripturally any right of property in any human being, unless it be for crime, and holding that the slave is always to be treated as a man, suppose that whatever is done in plain and obvious violation of these principles may properly receive the notice of yourselves and your sessions, end quote. Four, the missionaries are to pursue such a course that the mission churches may soon be freed, quote, from all participation in a system that is so contrary to the spirit of the gospel and so regardless of the rights of man, end quote. Five, they are to abstain from using slave labor. Quote, it is with profound regret, the committee say, that we have learned how many hired slaves are now in the service of the Choctaw Mission. We readily acquit you of any plan or purpose to disregard our known wishes on this subject. We cheerfully accept the excuse you offer, namely that the boarding schools established in 1843, in consequence of an arrangement made with the Choctaw government, in your view made such assistance necessary, and that you supposed the committee must have assented to its employment. This engagement with the Choctaw government has some fifteen years to run, and yet we do not feel willing to be a party to the hiring of slaves for this long period. By so doing, as it seems to us, we countenance and encourage the system. We make this species of labor more profitable to the owner, at the same time that we put it into his power, if he will, to plead our example to justify or excuse the relation. In this state of things it appears to be our duty to ask you, first of all, to inquire once more into the supposed necessity of this practice, and to see if slave labor cannot in some way be dispensed with, and if you can discover no method by which a change can be effected, we submit for your consideration whether it be not desirable to request the Choctaw government to release us from our engagement in respect to the boarding schools. It is with pain that we present this alternative, but such are our views of duty in this case that we cannot suggest a different course. End quote. This practical question as to the propriety of employing slave labor stands in a measure by itself. We would venture to remark respecting it, one, that as it is properly a secular matter connected immediately with the schools which are the property and under the control of the committee, they may be entitled to use the strong language of authority which is employed in this letter. Two, it is no doubt conceivable that to employ such labor may be very inexpedient. If any considerable number of Christians are offended by it, or if any are thereby led into sin, it may be well to abstain from it, on the same principle that Paul said he would eat no meat while the world stood, if meat made his brother to offend. Three, the reasons, however, assigned by the committee are to us very unsatisfactory. Those reasons are all founded on the assumption that slaveholding is sinful. Otherwise, there could be no scruples of conscience in the case. The committee would not hesitate to allow the missionaries to set to those around them a Christian example as to the method of treating and instructing slaves did they not regard the, quote, relation itself as unnatural and sinful, end quote. The slaves often earnestly desire to be employed by the mission, their condition is thereby improved, their privileges increased, and they are thus brought into the way of religious instruction and perhaps of salvation. Unless slaveholding is a sin, it is hard to see how the force of these considerations is to be resisted. 4. The committee urge that by allowing the mission to hire slaves, they sanction the system and put it into the power of the owner to plead their example to justify the relation. This is not the fair interpretation of their conduct. Nothing more than the recognition of a de facto relation is involved in employing slaves. 
No opinion is thereby expressed of the justice of the relation. When one government recognizes another, it is only as de facto, not as de jure. It would involve endless difficulty and doubt if such recognition was understood to be a judgment as to the legitimate or equitable title of the government recognized. It is so also with matters of property. Does every man who buys land of the United States thereby sanction the equity of all the treaties by which that land was acquired? The settlers in New Holland are not understood to pronounce judgment on the justice of the sentences by which the men they hire are consigned to bondage. Those who employed and those who redeemed the Christian captives in Algiers did not sanction the piracy by which those captives were obtained. What would be thought of a father who should allow his son to pine in hopeless bondage, refusing to pay his ransom because, by so doing, he would admit the right of his master and render piracy more profitable? If such conduct would be unnatural, to us it seems no less unnatural than a Christian board should refuse to hire slaves to their own advantage, refuse to bring them under the influence of the gospel, lest they should be understood to sanction slavery. 5. The principle on which the committee act in this matter cannot be consistently carried out. Every use we make of the product of slave labor is an encouragement to slavery. If all men were to agree not to use anything in the production of which slaves have been employed, slavery must instantly cease. This is not done here at the North. We presume it is not done by the committee. It is not done by the missionaries. They doubtless consume the wheat, the beef, the corn, which slaves have assisted in raising. It therefore seems very strange that the committee should say they will give up their schools rather than sanction slavery when they will not give up the sugar for their coffee for the same reason. The missionaries require a great deal of assistance in their domestic and farming operations. Free labor is very difficult to be obtained. The plan of sending out assistant missionaries has been tried and failed. The use of slave labor has been sanctioned by the former officers of the board, in 1825, the Prudential Committee resolved that they, quote, did not see cause to prohibit the practice, end quote. In 1836, they resolved to dispense altogether with slave labor, but on a representation having been made by the missionaries that they could not get on without it, quote, the matter was left to their Christian discretion, end quote. There the subject has been left until the present excitement has called it up, and so disturbed the conscience of the committee that they are forced to submit the alternative to the missionaries to give up their schools or to do without slave labor. The encouragement given to slavery by the missions, hiring a few slaves, much to their own benefit, is as nothing compared with that afforded by the wholesale use of the products of slave labor by the good people of Boston. We are sincerely sorry to say that this whole letter seems to us full of a mistaken spirit, carping at trifles in laborious, devoted men in the wilderness, while blind to tenfold greater evils of the same nature which pass without rebuke in our pampered churches at home. The doctrine, then, of this letter is that slavery is everywhere and at all times sinful. Christ condemned it, though not in words. The apostles abstained from denouncing it only on motives of expediency. Slaveholding is excusable and consistent with church membership only when involuntary or when temporarily continued at the request of the slave and for his benefit. The missionaries are to inculcate these principles and to pursue such a course as shall free the mission churches from all participation in the system. Even hiring slaves is to be abstained from, though the consequence be the disbanding the missionary schools. 
we have never understood that the avowed abolitionists go any further than this. They inculcate these doctrines in plainer terms and in a more straightforward, clear-headed manner. They are more preemptory in their demands and violent in their spirits, but as to all essential matters, their doctrines are those here presented. The third point on which the committee touch is their own authority in reference to this whole subject. They say, one, quote, We do not claim any direct control over the churches which you have gathered, nor shall we ever approach them in the language of authority or dictation, end quote. We can suppose a case, quote, in which we might be constrained by the sacredness of the trust committed to us to withhold that pecuniary aid it has given us in past years so much pleasure to afford, end quote. Two, quote, we do not wish you, either individually or collectively, to bring any other influence to bear on those churches or the community in which you dwell, except such as belongs to the ministerial office. End quote. 3. Quote, we do not design to infringe in the least by what we say in this letter upon your rights as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. That is, the committee does not claim what even a presbytery or a bishop would not think of assuming the right of dictation in matters of discipline. Nor do they wish the missionaries to assume that power to the exclusion of their session or to the infringement of the rights of the churches. Nor finally do they claim any authority over the missionaries themselves inconsistent with their office as ministers. Their whole claim is that they have the right to withhold pecuniary aid from those churches which do not conform their discipline to the views of the committee and from those ministers who do not obey their instructions as to their manner of teaching. This is the precise doctrine of the report, viz. that the board are responsible for the teaching of the missionaries, and therefore have the right to examine into what that teaching is, and to direct what it should be, and to withdraw their patronage from missionaries and churches who do not conform to their instructions. The missionaries have been led to take this view of the power claimed by the committee and to regard themselves and their churches as entirely in the hands of the board. If on account of our views on this subject they say, quote, the committee or board can no longer sustain us if they must withdraw from us their support and so far as they are concerned leave the Cherokee people without the preaching of the word of God, then wherever the responsibility belongs there let it rest. We pray the committee to remember that if the patronage of the board be withdrawn from us, it will not be for the violation on our part of any condition on which we were sent into the field, but in consequence of new conditions with which we cannot in conscience comply. End quote. Again, quote, if support be withdrawn from us on account of views which we have expressed in this communication, it will of necessity be, so far as the board are concerned, an entire withholding of the word of God from the Cherokee people. For to recall us on this ground and to send others who would pursue an opposite course would be manifestly preposterous and vain. End quote. There is no doubt, therefore, as to how the missionaries have been taught to view this matter. So also in the passage quoted above from President Blanchard's appeal, it is said with approbation, quote, If the missionaries obey, they are abolitionists. If they disobey, they are dropped. End quote. The committee claim, therefore, in this letter, as we understand them, and as they seem to be universally understood, the right to withhold pecuniary aid from missionaries and mission churches unless they become abolitionists. 1. Our first objection then to this letter, as may be inferred from what we have already said, is that it proceeds on a misapprehension of the true relation and powers of the board. 
It assumes that the board is responsible for the teaching of the missionaries and therefore has the right to judge of it and to direct it. This, we have endeavoured to show, is a mistake. The board are the agents and not the plenipotentiaries of the churches. The churches have never committed to them the right to judge, in their behalf, of Christian doctrine, or of deciding what is and what is not consistent with their several creeds. This is a high ecclesiastical function which belongs only to ecclesiastical bodies. The board cannot go behind the official judgment of the churches. If the Presbyterian Church has pronounced a certain doctrine consistent with her standards, the board cannot dismiss a Presbyterian missionary from their service on account of holding or teaching that doctrine. Nor can they withhold their support from any mission church under the care of a presbytery for any cause which the Presbyterian Church does not consider worthy of censure. If the members of the committee discover that the Presbyterian Church holds doctrines or tolerates usages which they cannot with a good conscience help to sustain, the simple course is for them to resign. But if multitudes sympathise with them, then the fact is revealed that they and the Presbyterians can no longer unite in the missionary work. But it is clearly unreasonable for the committee to profess to be agents of the Presbyterian Church, old or new, and yet refuse to be guided by the judgment of that church. The New School General Assembly, as well as the Old, has decided that such slaveholding as is tolerated in the mission churches of the Cherokees and Choctaws is consistent with Christian character and fellowship. With what show of reason, then, can the Boston Committee, the agents of those Presbyterians, in dispersing Presbyterian money, say it shall not be permitted? It is clear as day that so long as the Dutch, Presbyterian and Congregational Churches unite in the work of missions, the Board has no right to withdraw their patronage from any man or church on account of any doctrine or usage which those churches approve. And it is no less clear that the right to judge of the consistency or inconsistency of any doctrine or usage with the standards of those churches rests not with the committee but with the churches themselves. To deny either of these propositions is to create a dictatorship at once. The effect of this misapprehension is clear throughout Mr. Treat's letter. The secretary summons before him ministers who are members of presbytery in good standing, interrogates them as to their opinions, their mode of teaching and exercise of discipline. He lays down rules as to how that teaching is to be conducted and the terms on which members are to be received into Presbyterian churches. He gives them to understand that the committee may, quote, be constrained by the sacredness of the trust committed to them to withhold that pecuniary aid it has given them in past years so much pleasure to afford. End quote. Footnote, that aid, however, is not given by the committee, but by the churches through the committee, a very important distinction. If given by the committee, it may be given at their discretion, but if given by the churches, it must be given according to their pleasure, i.e. to men and churches whom they approve. End footnote. His sole legitimate authority in the matter was to ask, quote, Brethren, does your church approve of such and such teaching? And does it sanction such and such conditions of church membership? End quote. If the answer to those questions is affirmative, the matter is ended. The committee may be grieved or they may be glad. Their private opinions are not to be in the least consulted in such cases. As to manner, the letter is unexceptionable. It is couched in the blandest terms. It was evidently penned with the determination that no word should grate on the most delicate ear. Nevertheless, it is perfectly archiepiscopal in its tone. It was written just as the servant of servants is wont to write, or, to use a better illustration, as Paul wrote when he said, quote, 
Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged. End quote. This is lovely and venerable from apostolic lips, but apostolic lips have long since been sealed in death. We do not in the least attribute the apostolic tone of this letter to anything in the personal feelings of its authors. We believe them to be good men and as humble as the rest of us. It is due to their false apprehension of their position. They are not entrusted with the authority which they suppose belongs to them. So long as the ecclesiastical bodies with which the missionaries and mission churches among the Cherokees and Choctaws are connected, are satisfied with their doctrine and discipline, the Prudential Committee have no more right to interfere in the matter than any other five gentlemen in Boston. 2. Our second objection to this letter is that it is inconsistent with the special report of the Prudential Committee. It agrees indeed with the report in claiming the right to sit in judgment on the teaching of the missionaries, and to control it according to their own interpretation of the general creed of the churches. It differs, however, from it in another important principle. The report says expressly the board is not, quote, at liberty to withdraw its confidence from missionaries because of such differences of opinion among them as are generally found and freely tolerated in presbyteries, councils, associations, and other bodies here at home. End quote, page 17. This rule follows as a matter of course from what is said on pages 13 and 14 as to the standard by which the board proposes to judge of doctrine, viz. the articles of faith, quote, generally received by the churches. End quote. It may enforce obedience in those things in which the churches are united, but not in those cases in which they are divided. This principle is on page 14 expressly applied to slavery. Quote, the admission of slaveholders into the apostolical churches end quote, is said to be one of the points about which the churches differ. Hence the board, it is said, quote, may not undertake to decide that this class of persons was certainly admitted to church membership by the apostles, nor that they were excluded in such a way as to have the effect on the missionaries of a statute, injunction, or scripture doctrine in respect to the admission of such persons into churches now to be gathered in heathen nations where slavery is found, end quote. The committee, it is added, may reason, persuade, and remonstrate, but further, neither they nor the board are authorized to go. Now, according to the interpretation, as far as we know, universally put upon this letter, according to what appears to us its necessary meaning, and according to the understanding of the missionaries themselves, this is precisely the question the committee undertake in this letter authoritatively to decide. It lays down the rule as to how slaveholders are to be dealt with when they are to be received and when rejected from the communion of the church. All this is done officially and with authority and with the intimation that the continuance of the connection between the Indian churches and the board depends upon their acting agreeably to the instructions here given. If this be not the character of the letter, it loses all its importance. Footnote. The writer of this review feels called upon to state that he has recently received a communication from one of the officers of the American board in which he says, quote, I am sure it, i.e. Mr. Treat's letter, never was designed to have any such legislative authority, nor was such authority ever desired or sought for, nor has the letter such authority now. The action of the board upon it at Hartford in the year 1854 added nothing to the import of the letter, did not change its nature. It is not a body of instructions but of opinions, 
to have their weight and influence only as such among the missionaries, end quote. This alters the whole aspect of the case, and the strictures in the text lose their force so far as they rest on the authoritative character of the letter. They are of consequence only as a vindication of the Choctaw missionaries who regard the letter as, quote, a body of instructions, end quote. August 1856, end footnote. If it is an unofficial letter of friendship instead of a letter of instructions, why should it be so solemnly sanctioned by the committee reported to the board, and their decision respecting it looked to us as determining the ground the board was hereafter to stand upon? It would be sad news for the abolitionists, but a great relief to the missionaries and to the Christian public to know that the board renounces the right to forbid slaveholding in the mission churches on pain of losing their patronage. This, however, is not to be hoped for if this letter expresses their views of their own authority. It expresses the sentiment of the committee on the whole subject of slavery, calls upon the missionaries to say whether they acquiesce in them and are ready, quote, to act in accordance with them, end quote. The committee, therefore, here undertake to decide a point disputed among the churches. It decides, moreover, in favour of the minority. It proposes a doctrine of church communion which no denominational church has been left to adopt. It was indignantly voted down by an overwhelming majority, hundreds to units, in the General Assembly of the Free Church of Scotland. It was rejected after nearly three weeks' debate by the New School Assembly in Philadelphia. It is repudiated by the Reformed Dutch Church and by that branch of the Presbyterian Church with which some of these mission churches are immediately connected. It is probably rejected by four-fifths of all the educated converted men in the world. Yet this doctrine, the official organs of one of the most influential benevolent institutions in the world, would force on the ministers and churches of Christ. It would be better for the committee to cut off their right hands rather than cut off the Indian churches because they admit slaveholders to their communion. Not because of any pecuniary loss it may occasion, but because it cannot be done without a sacrifice of principle, without subjecting the church to public opinion, now violently this and again violently that. We sincerely pray that the board may be preserved from any such disastrous mistake. 3. Our third objection to this letter is that it is pervaded by a false philosophy. This is no small evil. It is a recognized truth that the world is governed by ideas. The character of men is formed, their conduct determined and their destiny decided, in no small degree, by definitions. It is the view which they take of the primary principles of moral and metaphysical truth that governs their opinions and consequently their conduct. The false philosophy of this letter leads to wrong views of duty, and those wrong views of duty to a course of measures which, if persisted in, must split the American board to pieces and, to the extent of its influence, facilitate first the division of the American churches, and then the dissolution of the American Union. The philosophy on which this communication is founded is what is popularly called the doctrine of expediency. It is that philosophy in which the words right and wrong lose their distinctive meaning and become the mere synonyms of beneficial and injurious. It is a philosophy which makes the end sanctify the means and teaches that an action may be externally wrong and internally right. This is the philosophy to which all the doctrines and directions of this letter owe their character. This, for example, is the origin of the distinction between slavery and slave-holding, between the system and the persons implicated therein. 
The system is always sinful, but those who practice it may be innocent. Quote, the continuance of the relation is wrong, but the master may stand acquitted in the sight of God because he was influenced solely by benevolent motives. Just as the selling ardent spirits in the days of our common ignorance on the subject of temperance was clearly wrong, and yet many good men, never imagining that they were acting contrary to the law of love, engaged in the traffic. The external character of an act is one thing, its internal character quite another thing. A man may conscientiously do that which is injurious in its tendency, as, on the other hand, he may, with a bad motive, do that which is innocent or beneficial in its tendency. End quote. Such language necessarily supposes that right means beneficial and wrong injurious. No moral distinction is admitted but only a difference, as expedient or inexpedient. A thing being injurious may indeed be one reason why it would be wrong in anyone voluntarily to do it, but to merge the distinction of right and wrong into that of expedient and inexpedient subverts the foundation of morals and religion, and when logically carried out, leads to the greatest enormities. According to the doctrine of this letter, no matter what the external character of an act may be, it is innocent if done conscientiously or from benevolent motives. If this is so, then Paul was not to blame for persecuting the church, because he verily believed he was doing God's service. He had no doubt that the interests of truth, of his nation and of the world, were involved in putting down what he regarded as an imposture. This doctrine exculpates all persecutors and inquisitors, the exterminators of the Waldenses and of the Peruvians, provided only they were conscientious, which was, as it regards many of them, no doubt the case. It is vain to argue this matter. No man can look the naked proposition in the face that everything is innocent to him who thinks it to be right. The very essence of the guilt of men, the very sum of their depravity, is their thinking good evil and evil good. The Bible holds up to us coincidence of moral judgment with God as the ideal of perfection, and as the clearest evidence of alienation from him that we regard that to be right which he abhors. If an act may be externally wrong and internally right, then the assassination of Henry IV, from an earnest desire to rid the world of an evil, was right. And then the doctrine that the end sanctifies the means must, in all its length and breadth, be admitted. The motive of an action is determined by the end in view. If that end be the good of society, the motive is benevolent, and no matter what the nature of the act, the agent stands acquitted in the sight of God because he is governed by benevolent motives. This is radically and lamentably false morality. No man can sin innocently. No man stands acquitted in the sight of God for doing what God forbids. If slaveholding is sinful, all slaveholders are sinners. If persecution is wicked, all persecutors are without excuse. If selling ardent spirits is wrong now, the good men who formerly engaged in the traffic sinned against God. The reason of this is plain. All moral truths contain their own evidence, evidence which no man can innocently reject. How preposterous would it be for men to talk of committing theft, murder or drunkenness from benevolent motives? No man can screen himself at a human tribunal, much less at the bar of God, behind his motives. It is indeed a plain doctrine of the Bible and a plain principle of morals that some sins, by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. But it remains true nevertheless that every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. 
The crimes of the heathen committed in their blindness do not lose their nature as sins, though it will be far more tolerable in the day of judgment for them than for many Christians. That sins may be greatly aggravated by the circumstances under which they are committed, and especially by the light enjoyed by the transgressor, is very different from the doctrine which holds a man innocent, who conscientiously commits a sin, or which teaches that a thing may be externally wrong and internally right. Another evidence of the false philosophy of this letter is found in the manner in which it speaks of the conduct of our Lord and his apostles in relation to slavery. It represents them as abstaining from the denunciation of sin, from motives of expediency. God, however, hates and everywhere and at all times denounces all sin. Why were idolatry and covetousness denounced? They were far more prevalent than slaveholding. They were more influential and more deeply rooted, and yet no considerations of expediency constrained the apostles to silence regarding them. It is an impeachment of the integrity of any teacher of morality to say that he avoided all denunciation of theft, murder, and adultery from motives of expediency. No one can think without a shudder of Christ and the apostles giving directions to thieves and drunkards how to treat their associates or victims. This doctrine that men's conduct in reference to moral questions may be regulated by expediency overlooks all moral distinctions. With regard to things indifferent, expediency is a very proper guide, but no truth can be plainer than that all sin should be everywhere denounced and immediately forsaken. To the same false principles are to be referred all the directions which this letter gives to the missionaries. Slaveholding is sinful, but you need not say so. You may choose your time, you may wait for suitable occasions, you may do it indirectly when it would not answer to do it plainly, that all this is wrong is obvious. No such directions could be given with regard to any other sin. It would not do to say to the missionaries, you may take your time to denounce robbery and murder. You may do it indirectly, etc., etc. The public are not so entirely blinded by a false philosophy as not to see this would be wrong. And we cannot but hope it may be given to the prudential committee to see that there is something amiss in their theory. Either slaveholding is not a sin, or this is not the way to treat it. From this same doctrine of expediency, from the doctrine that a thing may be externally wrong and internally right, flows the inquisitorial treatment of slaveholding converts here recommended. This prying into their motives in owning slaves to determine whether they are selfish or benevolent. Is this the course pursued with regard to lying and theft? Is the poor convert cross-questioned as to his motive in cheating and stealing? We trow not. And why not? simply because everyone knows that cheating and slaveholding belong to very different categories. Lying and theft are sinful in themselves, it matters not with what motives they are committed. If slaveholding is sinful, there is no need to inquire into a man's motive in sinning. 4. Our fourth objection to this letter is its want of discrimination and clearness. The writer gives us no distinct idea of what it is he condemns. He condemns slavery, but he does not tell us what he means by it. He seems to speak of it as a system which keeps men in degradation, which denies to them a just compensation for labour, which disregards their rights as husbands and parents, which forbids their instruction and debars them from access to the word of God. He sees, as everyone else sees, that a system which does all this must be sinful, it is a system which ought not to be dallied with, or assaulted indirectly, but should be openly denounced and immediately abandoned by every good man. 
But these things are not slavery. They do not enter into its definition. It may, and in many cases does, exist without one of these circumstances. Slavery is involuntary servitude, and servitude is the obligation to serve. This is all that is essential to slavery. It supposes the right on the part of the master to the service of the slave without his consent. In every country where slavery prevails, there are two sets of laws relating to it, the one designed to enforce this right of the master to render it profitable and to perpetuate it, the other intended to protect the slave. These laws vary continually. They were far more unjust in the French West India Islands than in the British, and more unjust in the British than in the Spanish Laws made by slaveholders and intended to enforce and to render secure and profitable their rights to the service of their slaves are almost always more or less in conflict with the gospel. So is all class legislation of any kind. In regard to these laws, it is the business of the church, by her instructions and discipline, to enforce such as are good and such as are indifferent, and to denounce such as are wicked. If the Roman law gave the power of life and death to the master, he was nonetheless a murderer in the sight of the church if he maliciously put his slave to death. If American law gives the master the power of punishment, he is nonetheless guilty in the sight of the church for every act of cruelty. If the law allows the master to keep back from his slaves a due recompense for their labor, to debar them access to the means of grace, and especially from the word of God, he is not the less accountable to the church for every violation of the law of justice and mercy. Human laws allow to parents and husbands a power which they may dreadfully abuse, yet the possession of that power is not itself sinful. What we complain of is that this letter makes no discrimination between slavery and slave laws, between the possession of a master's power and the abuse of that power. The relation itself is pronounced, quote, unnatural and sinful, end quote, when all the arguments tend to prove not the relation but the abuse of it to be wrong. Christ and his apostles evidently regarded the possession of despotic power, whether in the state or the family, a matter of indifference, i.e. neither right nor wrong in its own nature, but the becoming one or the other according to the circumstances. It was therefore not despotism in the state or slaveholding in the family which they condemned, but the wrong use of the authority of the despot or the master. There is the same confusion with regard to the word property. The letter says the converted slaveholder must repudiate the idea of having a right of property in a human being. Everything done on the assumption of such a right is declared to be a proper matter for discipline, but not one word is said to inform us what this right of property is. Abolitionists say it is the right to make a man a thing or a brute. If this is what is meant, will anyone venture to say that Christ and his apostles, from motives of expediency, failed to denounce so great a sin as that? Neither lying nor stealing could be one half so offensive to God as such an insult and degradation put upon his own image. No slave laws, however atrocious, ever proceeded on the assumption that a slave was not a rational being, of the same nature with his master. If this is what the letter means by the right of property, it is a mere chimera. The only sense in which one man can have a property in another is in having a right to his services. In this sense, the state has the right of property in her citizens, a right which she often presses further than the slaveholder can press his power, when she forces men into her armies and navies and sends them to die by pestilence or the sword. 
These are subjects which we have repeatedly discussed at length in the pages of this journal. We have no desire to travel again over the same ground. We have said enough to show the lamentable consequences of not discriminating things that differ, of confounding things lawful or indifferent with things in their own nature sinful. If the noble letters, written by the Cherokee and Choctaw missionaries, failed to open the eyes of the committee to this distinction, we despair of being able to do it. Those letters show that the missions are faithful in this whole matter, dealing with the subject just as the scriptures treat it, condemning all that is sinful and requiring all that justice or love demand, abstaining only from pronouncing, contrary to the scriptures and contrary to the judgment of nine-tenths of the people of God in all ages, quote, the relation itself to be unnatural and sinful, end quote. There are several perfectly distinct and intelligible views of this whole subject of slavery and of the proper method of dealing with it. The first is that it is a good and desirable institution, a state of the labouring population which upon the whole is preferable to any other. Appropriate means ought therefore to be taken to perpetuate and extend it. As, however, slavery is founded on the inferiority of one class of society to another, it cannot continue to exist unless that inferiority be perpetuated. Consequently, according to this view, slaves ought to be debarred from the means of improvement and kept in a condition of intellectual and social debasement. This is the fanatical pro-slavery doctrine. It has been repudiated by all the great men of the South in the earlier periods of our history, and is probably not held by one educated man in a hundred, perhaps not by one in a thousand, in our slaveholding states. The second view is that the relation is unnatural and sinful, and should therefore be immediately and universally renounced, just like any other sin, drunkenness, lying, or theft. This is clear-headed and straightforward abolitionism. The third is the scriptural view. Slaveholding, according to this view, belongs to the class of things indifferent, of things neither forbidden nor commanded in the word of God, which are right or wrong according to circumstances. It is like despotism in the state. A man may possess despotic power in the state, power giving him authority over the persons and property of his fellow men. The abuse of such power is a great sin. To employ it with the view of perpetuating it, by keeping those under its control in a state of ignorance or debasement, is one of the greatest acts of injustice that one man can commit towards his fellows. But if that power be used justly and benevolently, its possession is no sin, and the despot may be one of the greatest benefactors of his race. Despotism, however, is not a desirable form of government. No means, therefore, ought to be employed to perpetuate it. It is adapted only to a low state of civilization, and must disappear as the mass of the people increase in intelligence, property, and virtuous self-control. It is just so with slavery, or domestic despotism. A man may be a slaveholder without any impeachment of his Christian character. The relation in which he stands to his slaves is not a sinful one. It is not forbidden in the word of God. It may be the most appropriate and natural relation in which the parties can stand to each other. Just as despotism in some circumstances is the very best form of government. But such slaveholder is bound to use his power as a Christian, just as a parent or husband is bound to use his authority, or a rich man his wealth. He must act in obedience to the gospel which teaches that the labourer is worthy of his hire, and that a fair compensation must in all cases be made to him, which forbids the separation of those whom God has joined in marriage, 
which requires all appropriate means to be used for the intellectual and moral improvement of our fellow men, and especially that free access should be granted them to the word of God and to all the means of grace. This is the gospel method of dealing with slavery. If this method be adopted, the inferiority of the one class to the other, on which slavery is founded, will gradually disappear, and the whole system be peacefully and healthfully abolished. This is the way in which the gospel has already banished domestic slavery from a large part of the Christian world. There are some men who are so blind they cannot see, or so wicked they will not acknowledge the difference between this view and the first above mentioned. An unsuccessful attempt is sometimes made, as in this letter of Mr. Treats, to find some middle ground between abolitionism and what we have ventured to designate as the scriptural view of this subject. The principles of the abolitionists are admitted, but their conclusions are denied or modified. The system is sinful, but those who practice it may be innocent. The relation is wrong, but it need not be immediately abandoned. Being sinful, it affords prima facie evidence that those who are concerned with it are not Christians. Before they can be properly recognized as such, they must prove that they are influenced by benevolent motives in doing what is, quote, unnatural and sinful, end quote. In all we have now written, we have been influenced by the most friendly feelings towards the American board. We believe it has been an incalculable blessing to this country and to the heathen world. We regard the interests of the Redeemer's kingdom as deeply involved in its prosperity. We think all Christians are bound to pray for its success, to avoid everything that can injuriously affect it, and to promote its efficiency as God may give them the ability and occasion. We believe that the misapprehension which in our judgment characterizes the report of the Prudential Committee is perfectly natural and entirely consistent with the purest intentions on their part. We believe further that the correction of that misapprehension and the adoption of the principles we have endeavoured to sustain in this review, so far from impeding their operations, would tend directly to disembarrass and facilitate them. The committee say they are directly responsible for the teaching of the missionaries. They must therefore have the right to know what it is, to judge and to direct it. The consequence is their conscience is always on the alert. The opinions of the few gentlemen in Boston as to what is and what is not the faith and discipline of the church, become the rule by which all missionaries are to conduct their teaching, subject indeed to the revision of the board. Hence, if the missionaries teach that slavery is not in itself sinful, and that slaveholding is not prima facie evidence of an unconverted state, and the committee think otherwise, and that the churches agree with them, they are bound to require the missionaries to conform to their views. According to the other view of the matter, the committee are not directly responsible for the teaching of the missionaries. That responsibility rests on the ecclesiastical body to which they belong. To that body, therefore, and not to the committee, belongs the right of inquiry, judgment, and direction. Consequently, so long as the denomination with which a missionary is connected approves of any doctrine or rule of discipline, the committee cannot interfere. If, for example, missionaries connected with the Presbyterian or Dutch church with the approbation of those churches, admit slaveholders to the communion, the committee are relieved from all responsibility. On the other hand, if missionaries connected with the Congregationalists, with the approbation of those entitled to judge, hold and teach that slaveholders should not be received, the committee are bound to acquiesce as to the mission churches under Congregational control. By the board and the churches keeping thus in their separate spheres, we see not why there need be any collision between them. End of section 22.